0: If you want to get rid of all the ads, just choose the David McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts and you'll hear us without any clutter or noise or ads. Lovely
1: John. Beautiful.
2: Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. To understand the economy,
1: you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST.
0: How are you doing there? It is podcast time. John and I are discussing uh, all sorts of issues. We're talking about generational divides, John. I was teaching all week in Trinity and I was talking to the kids. Uh, well, not the kids.
1: Kids, you know, you see, yeah, you kids
0: go. Young adults, young adults. People are mid thirty year olds. Uh, they're not thirty years. They're MBA students. So yeah, right. some of them are thirty. But we were just, we were chatting about the differences between generations. As I was being an old crusty, trying to turn on Microsoft Word or something like yeah. this or yeah, yeah, yeah. PowerPoint or something. Like oh god, here we go. Anyway, but I was I was also struck by the you fact You figure
1: out your digital watch.
0: Ah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's like my stopwatch. Exactly. But. I was struck, I was, I was at a restaurant the other day and there was a young couple beside me, Mm. right? And their food came out, right? This is a very middle-aged observation. And they started not to eat, but they whipped out their phones and started to take photographs of the food, right? And we
1: know this is a thing, right? It's part of the entree, isn't it? But I mean,
0: it's like, it's like, it's, it's a sort of bizarre ritual of a generation, right? That they're living their lives on Instagram. Yes. They're living their lives through who, who they would like to be and how they like to their image to be perceived. It's like outsourcing their memories. Like, exactly. But exactly. You know, and I was just thinking, i felt like saying, what's wrong with eating your dinner? You know, <laughs> just eat your dinner there rather than taking photographs. But I was talking about this to the students, and they were saying, well, that's actually one of the great generational divides between your generation and our generation. Mm. Our generation log everything because we're projecting this notion of our experience, our lifestyle. And it, it, it led me to think about a book that was written a couple of years ago, well, actually more than a couple of years ago, but like 25 years ago, right? <laughs> Time flies, flies like down that. Down. <laughs> That's another generation. Of exactly. It's a few years ago, exactly, by a guy called Rolf Jensen, okay? Yeah. And the, in, the, in the 90s, right, called The Dream Society, And it's about the idea that people's spending habits were changing. He was talking about, he was saying in the future, which is where we are now, (laughs) that people will buy stories, they'll buy legends, they'll buy emotion, they'll buy lifestyle. They spend a huge amount of their disposable income on experiences. And the whole idea was in the past, we used to spend lots and lots of our income on commodities, essentials. But as societies get richer, we spend much more money on experiences. And of course now festivals, gigs, all that sort of stuff. What
1: what you and I spend our money on is actually acquiring, buying experiences. But even even like trends in business and marketing, it's all about experiential marketing. You know, your clients, your customers, giving them an experience of of the product and activation and all this kind of stuff. But what is interesting in that when you talk about experiences, as you know, I was in London last week. I was. And what I found really interesting, I, I haven't been to the British Museum in ages. And I decided I want to see the Rosetta Stone. You know the Rosetta? Yeah, stone? yeah, yeah. It's the, the stone that unlocked all the Egyptian hieroglyphs discovered by Napoleon soldiers. Anyway, it's an amazing one meter square piece of granite. But what's beautiful about it is you have to get up close to actually see, you know, it the legends in, of that. Yeah, it's yeah, amazing. Yeah. And of course, it's in a big glass box, and there's loads of people around bustling in, elbows out, this trying a to Post-COVID do... moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it absolutely is. And it was fascinating. But then you're you're brushed off to the side because somebody else wants to see it. Then later on that day, I was down in Spitalfield, and we went into the Van Gogh experience immersive. Sure. You're getting very highfalutin. Oh, very highfalutin. Very, very highfalutin. High. But this is all about an immersive experience, all virtual, and you can stick on headsets, you know, those Oculus yeah, yeah, headsets, yeah. and you walk into Van Gogh. I have an image of you in my head now with those yokes in your face. <laughs> but the point is, it's the difference between the real and the virtual, and both are amazing experiences, but there's still, for me, and maybe this is a generational thing as well, there's something just more soulful about the real experience and whether that's going to a gig or seeing a piece of art up close and and personal. There's a much different, and for me, a much nicer experience. Well, this is what I want to talk about
0: today, okay, which is this idea of the dream economy, which is actually huge. The festival economy in Ireland. Mm. It's absolutely huge. Something you know but an awful idea, lot about. Yeah, because I've, I've uh, in, in later life, I've involved myself <laughs> in festivals, right? Yeah. Which I love organising. Yeah. I find it really fascinating. But, you know, it's that idea that people are, are are not so much saying, I like that. They're saying, I am like that. It's like, yeah. This is my tribe. This is the sort yeah. of person yeah. I am. But if you, I mean, if you look at the thing about doing writing festivals, mm. literary festivals, ideas festivals, art festivals, right, is the artists themselves are at the centre. And I want to talk to an artist in a minute, Paddy Cullivan, one of the greats, oh, yeah. actually.
1: It's, yeah, one yeah. of the greats yeah.
0: about his show about the economics of Wolf Tone. So yeah. by the way, we're doing the economics of Wolf Tone, but and the difficulty of being an artist in this society, of making it living as a viscerally creative person, mm. off your own bat, because the dream economy can only be supplied by artists. They're the people who create the experience. Absolutely, know? yeah. And if you look at the art sector in Ireland, right, and this is the same for all over the world, it creates, in, in the case of Ireland, it's 55,000 jobs, of which 70% of those jobs are outside Dublin. So it actually is much more regionally spread. Yeah, it's great. According to Fulcher Ireland, right, the number of overseas visitors coming to Ireland to attend festivals is 300,000 people come uniquely to go to festivals, right? And the contribution of the sector is 1.6 billion of gross value added in the economy, right? Now, this is an amazing business. And the multiplier, so one of the things that Keynes, the great Keynes Mm. came up with, was this idea of the multiplier, that when you spend a euro, it's not just a euro, it's how that euro, then you spend a bit of that, then it goes to somebody else, it goes to somebody else, so it multiplies around the economy, right? The multiplier on arts festivals, for every one euro spent, the multiplier is estimated to be six euros, so six times more, because if you go to a festival, you're in the spending mood, you have a drink, you go out for lunch, you buy this, that and the other, so it is a huge, huge industry, and yet the artists themselves find it very, very difficult to make a crust. And it's that idea that a society is its culture. Yeah. And I've always thought the way look, we look at economics in this podcast is that economics and the economy is an incredibly intricate ecosystem. That blackboard economics, the stuff you learn in university, the stuff you learn in school, thinks that it's all about inputs and outputs and supply and demand and widgets, right? But in actual fact, as the economy gets more sophisticated, it's about dreams, experience, art, culture,
1: mm. all those things. So I want to talk about that this week. But wasn't it always the case, though, with the struggling artist, the image of the struggling artist?
0: You know, yes. we talked about
1: Van Gogh earlier on, but you know, th- there was always the struggling artists and it's usually the ones who, when they died, they became more yeah, famous. That's, that's they, the,
0: oh, yeah, that's the that's the worst thing about art. It's yeah, great. dying is great for business. Yeah, you know it is. It's a, one of the one of the one of the greatest one of the greatest motivational factors <laughs> for business is dying. No, yeah, and it's the it's that idea is how do you in a society cultivate the arts? Now, in fairness to Ireland, right? This last year, there's been a pilot scheme launched, which is a universal basic income for artists. Mm. So that ensures that 2,000 artists are given a payment of 325 euros per week just to make art. Yeah, But to put that in, lots of people say, oh, Jesus, I can't believe they're doing that. Mm. That is 17 grand per annum, far below the minimum wage. So it's not as if people are being, you know, given money, but you need to look after artistic Absolutely. folk. Absolutely. Because if you don't look after artistic folk, you will have a barren cultural landscape. And if you have a barren cultural landscape, what do you have?
1: Well, you've got Instagram accounts with loads of pictures of food on <laughs> it. <laughs> that's what you're left with. On that note, on that cynical note,
0: <laughs> let us go and talk to one of the greats, Paddy Cullivan. He's coming to Dorkey. He's got a brilliant show about wolf tone. This is all about the economics of wolf tone, but I'll also ask him what it's like to actually survive as a musician yeah. working off his own bat. So let's go and let's talk to Paddy. Yeah. Ah, uh, would you look who's there? It's the Paddy Cullivan. Uh, how are you doing, Miels Sagosha? One of the great expressions. One of the great expressions, Paddy. I want to talk to you about Wolf Tone, the economics of Wolf Tone, which mm. I am fascinated by, and mm. I also want to talk about something that John and I have been discussing early on the podcast, which is also mm. the difficulty for the artist to make a living. In any country, but in particular this country. So, on the one hand, we celebrate our our Joyce's and our yates and our all those fellows, and they were right. But on the other hand, the day to day reality of making a crust from your art is something that I don't Abs- think many people think about.
3: Well, absolutely. I mean, it, everything has taken a punt, David. You know yourself. You, you book a show, you book a room, and the aim is to get bums on seats. That that's it, and that's 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 what you're doing the whole time. I would say that I would put as much effort into promotion as i would into actually performing or writing shows and stuff like that and that's why you need outlets and conduit and the problem with ireland is, well as we we have a kind of a gatekeeping element you know you have you have old media you have the national broadcaster and you have let's say the broadsheets but then you have new media and social media i do all my promotion on new media and social media and podcasts i have to because i just don't have the outlet elsewhere i'm, I'm, I'm no offense to mattress mick but, you know, there was a whole two minute feature on Mattress <laughs> Mick, the musical on the 6-1 News the other night. And he sold out the Liberty Hall Theatre. I have a Michael Collins show in the Liberty Hall Theatre on August 19th. And I've got to sell that without the 6-1 News. So, you know, so it's it's an eternal struggle. That's that's one of the elements of it. And that all takes money. That all takes an awful lot of hours of, of spade work and all of that type of thing. And it also, you know, this is not to say that all art is great and all art deserves an
0: it, audience yeah. and all art deserves to yeah. be eulogised. No, absolutely. Mm.
3: Yeah. But, but, but mine does.
1: There we go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> you're dead right, <laughs> Okay, so Paddy, I want to... Okay, we're going to park i We're going to come back to that in a second. I want to come yeah. back to the show you're bringing to Dalky. I am so delighted. But you're also bringing it around... You've been bringing it around the country. You're still on tour with it on tone. Okay. This yeah. is wolf tone and absolutely fascinating. So for non-Irish audiences, we're talking about... The American Revolution, the French Revolution, yep. liberty, fraternity, equality, all those huge issues. Tone might not necessarily be a name that you know straight away, but he's up there with the greats. He's up there with the founding fathers in the United States. He's up there with Hamilton. He's up there with Washington. All these geezers. He might even be up there with Talleyrand. He might even be up with all sorts of wonderful Napoleonic characters. Tell me about Wolf Tone and the show.
3: Well... The show is The Murder of Wolf Tone, but I'll get into that later on. Wolf Tone himself is an amazing character. Uh, He's born in 1763 in Dublin, but he's a middle-class Protestant. This is the era of the Protestant ascendancy. This is where the penal laws are in effect. Catholics, they can't vote, they can't bear arms, they can't own property, any of this stuff. It's apartheid in any other name. But also Presbyterians can't do that. And that's why a lot of Presbyterians leave the country and become the future presidents of America and run that American revolution. But the world Tone is born into means he has the social access of a Protestant, but he's Huguenot descent. His dad's a coachmaker. He's middle class. He's not. They're renters. They rent out in Kildare from from the Wolf family. In fact, Tone is named after the landlord, Theobald Wolf, which, you know, it's funny the similarities with today. That's the least you'd have to do to get security and tenure in Ireland today. <laughs> but, but, but but it's a tradition. They, they, they name the firstborn. The Wolves and the Tone's get on very well. But he grows up, he goes to Trinity. He's allowed to do that. He studies law for two years. But right across the road is is the the Parliament of Ireland, College Green. This is 300 ascendancy guys descended from Cromwellian soldiers. They own everything. They run everything. They don't even have to be elected. And, you know, they're so ineffectual, in fact, that after the Act of Union, 1806, they're taken over by a bank. Not the last (laughs) Irish Parliament to be taken over by a bank, as we remember (laughs) in recent times. So this is all going on, right? The American Revolution breaks out in 1776. A lot of it's to do with trade. Remember, absolutely within the British Empire, there is no free trade for the colonies, and Ireland's considered the same way. So if Arthur Guinness wants to export 100 barrels of Guinness to Boston, it first has to go to Liverpool, where he pays a massive tariff himself. Then the Bostonians have to pay a massive tariff to get the Guinness. And all that money goes to George III, the big kahuna, who's a god on earth. We're all his serfs after whom the Georgian period is named, and he can fight his resource wars with that. So this is going on. The revolution breaks out. Ireland empties of troops. Now, at the moment, there's a kind of a liberal element in the parliament under Henry Grattan. They never hold power, but they all head down, 1779, outside College Green says, you've no troops in Ireland to defend against the French who are now siding with the Americans in the Revolutionary War. They can invade at any moment. We will defend Ireland for you, King George, if you give us free trade and his back is against the wall. He has to do it. So from 1782 to 1801, Ireland experiences a massive boom of free trade. the first Celtic tiger, roads, bridges. Every city you know in Ireland is built, the Georgian period, the mansions.
0: Dublin, Dublin is built. Everything that we know about Dublin is built then.
3: Yeah. Harbours, roads, even the the, the straight roads you know in Ireland that still haven't been improved. Uh, Some of the roads in Sligo, I call them the Grattan roads. But (laughs) in the midst of, this amazing boom of course 75 percent of the country is still under the penal laws they can't benefit from it and along comes in 17 early 1790s the david mcwilliams of his day
0: here cribbing him on and moaning,
3: standing I'm on the, the sidelines donna <laughs> he doesn't just commit suicide who is he <laughs> Theobald wolf tone he's left the law and he started writing these amazing pamphlets which are bestsellers at the time He's become secretary of the Catholic Association, even though he's a prod. And he says, I've never met a Catholic, but they deserve all the rights. What? That, 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 that everybody else has. I'm telling you, like,
0: Wolf Tone is an extraordinary I didn't know character. that bit about he's him. That's bizarre. He's also a Freemason. Right. Also, yeah. also. Can I just tell you the Freemason, just just to, to, to anchor this whole, so Freemasonry, mm-hmm. there is a lodge in Paris called the Trente, the 30th Lodge. And in the 30th Lodge are two extraordinary economists, one guy called Concorde and another guy called Quisney, right? Right. And these guys are sitting there, Freemasons, and they are making the case for economic liberalism, social liberalism, political liberalism, and religious liberalism, all in the one umbrella, right? Right. This is a philosophical movement. It's an anti-monarchist, anti-royalist, a liberalizing movement. It comes from the Freemasons. We talk. We always talk about the spread of ideas, right? Mm, mm. The mechanism, as Paddy said, where all ideas are transferred is the pamphlet. This is the most revolutionary, incendiary piece of paper. Yeah. So usually one or two pages, right? But it's the Freemasons who end up bringing it to Ireland via the French Revolutionary. And the interesting thing is, most of the American revolutions are also Freemasons. So it's also like a parallel universe. And the other way we do this in talking in the Freemason house. Yes, yeah, because yeah, Because yeah. everybody goes against the Freemasons and says they're awful and they're a secret society and they're against Catholics and la, la, la. And they were dodgy. And they were dodgy breaches and things <laughs> like that. But they were in their day, Paddy, with Tone and with all these guys, they were a serious intellectual force.
3: Absolutely, and I knew you were a Freemason when I saw you walking around with a protractor and a set square. <laughs> the Boston, but, uh, <laughs> no, you see, this is what Tone is about. He's about questioning the very thing that's going on. And he brilliantly turns around and he says, you know, this revolution, economic revolution you had in, in 1782, you know, while at one stroke doubled the value of every borough monger in the kingdom, you still left three-fourths of our countrymen, Catholics, slaves, as you found them. And you see... All these guys, Oliver Bond, Napper Tandy, who, by the way, he was an older guy, but he had protested the moving of the customs house down to where James Gandon had it from where the Clarence Hotel is. He thought that would kill the business of the city of Dublin. So it's very similar to now again. But all these guys are middle class, they're mercantilist, and they're not socialists. What they're saying is make everybody equal. It's good for business. Why cripp your own markets by not allowing the majority of people to partake in them? You know, float all boats. It's very much an egalitarian thing. It comes from the writings of Tom Paine, who believe, you know, you got to get rid of this whole monarchy idea and the idea of a godhead. And we're all just spinning around serving this guy. And of course, Tone started calling these guys the men of no property. He says, our independence must be had at all hads from Britain. If the men of no property will not support us, they must fall. We must support ourselves by the aid of that numerous and respectable class of community, the men of no property. Remember, the world of the 1780s and 90s in Ireland is Klaus Schwab's dream. That you will own nothing and you will be happy. And of course, by men and no property, he's talking about the Catholics back then. Today, it's anyone under 40 or 45. <laughs> <laughs> Irrespective of religion, or 50 or 50. Yeah, yeah or 50. probably 50 at this point,
0: you know. So, so Paddy, the show is about this extraordinary character. Just very briefly, take us up to the United Ireland Revolution, Rebellion. And how Tone gets captured. I think off Tory Island, he gets captured in Donegal, yeah. doesn't he?
3: Yeah, well, it, I mean, it's an amazing story. He, effectively, the United Irishmen are formed. These are egalitarians. Their leadership are all Protestants. They're all Presbyterians. Remember, Pro- Irish Republican is, is invented by Protestant Presbyterians, which is why this history has been so pressed for so long. The, up in Belfast in 1791, there's a Bastille Day parade, and it's all Protestant Presbyterians. The Orange Order isn't formed until 1795 to try and counteract a lot of this stuff. In 1792, they hold a festival, the Belfast Harp Festival. So these guys are putting on music festivals as well, but it's also another way to agitate and recruit for this new force who don't become militant until about 1795 when they're banned completely. And if if you swear an oath of allegiance, you'll be killed by the government in Ireland and all of this. So Tone has to hightail it. He leaves with the whole family, heads to America, meets George Washington, says, look, can you raise an army and we're going to have a legitimate revolution in Ireland, a fair war you know, between two sides, two armies, you know, two professional armies, and, and that's what's going to happen. Now, Washington, they're just over the revolution.
0: Yeah, they're, they're, they like haven't the stomach for
3: it. Having the stomach for it, but also t- Tone doesn't like American republicanism. You still can't even vote if you own property over there. So he says, oh, you've got it all wrong. So in 1796, he heads to Paris, where he meets the directory there, and they say, yes, we're on. Because remember, since the French Revolution, everyone in the world has declared war on France. Yes, so. In that, that, is, that is
0: again one of the one of the things we don't learn so much is that the French hmm. Revolution, basically, you have a civil war in France at the hmm. same time as the revolutions are trying to fight Britain, Prussia, Austria Hungary, all the various Italian states. It's an extraordinary. It's an attack on an idea. It was the Excellent. idea of liberty that freaked them out, and they, they, they and there was they were trying to all the monarchists were trying to destroy the flame of the idea that you know what maybe people are equal
3: indeed and you see when tone gets there he says look can you help me out so in december 1796 a force of 15,000 men sail into bantry bay now the myth is that the weather was so bad they couldn't land but actually a guy on the boat called Grushy said no no we won't land till the main guy gets here five days they wait in calm weather and then they have to sail once the weather gets terrible. It's the closest Ireland came to being invaded. Had those fifteen thousand French soldiers invaded, Ireland would be different. It, you'd have a bistro in every Irish town today instead of a Supermax. You a decent wine, decent wine instead of blue nun in the '80s. You know, you know those places in Leeson Street in the '80s where your head was crippled uh, by, by terrible wine. Yeah, yeah, no no, no, no,
0: yeah, absolutely.
3: No, no, we would have had a great French egalitarian society now forget about
0: that and we'd have had a municipal swimming pool in every place we'd have had all yeah. sorts of, yeah, yeah. yeah
3: yeah some roads and we protest about you know retiring pensions yeah yeah line. yeah The gilet yeah.
0: every roundabout would be full of fellas in yellow high-vis yeah yellow high-vis but they'd be doing some work so <laughs> <Yeah>. um <laughs> we
3: would have had better breakfast rolls as well much more a <laughs> bit of a baguette with so the whole thing would yeah. be speaking French the whole thing yeah you wouldn't you wouldn't be shoveling sausages into them and rashers and all no, of that no no exactly. no exactly but but anyway uh, it would have been a better world but anyway th- that fails unfortunately and in 1797 the government realize how close they came and a reign of terror breaks out they just massacre thousands of people across ireland whether they're indeed the indian irishman or not so by may 1798 the rebellion breaks out while tone is still in paris it's terribly disorganized remember the right to bear arms is so important in america to this day because you couldn't have weapons in ireland at that point the two sides one side has pikes fighting against professional armies who can reload three times in a minute. So medieval against modern warfare. And yes, in Wexford, there's a massive war between forces of 20,000 and 35,000. In the whole rebellion, 30,000 people die. Tone is watching this on the sidelines over in France. He meets Napoleon, who is now the leader, and says, look, can you help me? And so three missions are sent to Ireland. One gets through under Humbert in August, in Mayo, which is an amazing story of two weeks. I'll do a whole other show on that. He wreaks havoc all over the place, crosses the Shannon, almost gets to Dublin. But Tone comes on the third mission, is captured off Tory Island by a far superior force, is brought to Dublin, put on trial on November 10th and set to be executed November 12th at 1pm on Monday outside Green Street, death by hanging.
0: And that's the culmination of the show.
3: Well, the culmination is, unfortunately, it's about what really happened. So uh, th- there are court cases pending. Wolf Tone, a lot of people say, oh, he was he knew he was going to die. He accepted his death. No, there was guys working for him all the time. John Philpott Curran, his legal team, at 11 o'clock in the morning on Monday, they head in to the forecourt saying his trial was illegal. It was a court-martial. He's a French officer. You can't kill this guy. He could be swapped for a, a, a prisoner on the British side. The judge agrees, a man who I believe may be Wolf Tone's father. He sends up habeas corpus to get Wolf Tone out of the prison for a new trial. The guy comes, the guy turns him down. William Sandy's his jailer. Second time, he's asked for habeas corpus and a surgeon comes back, a French surgeon called Benjamin Lentain and says, oh, sorry, Tone attempted suicide on himself last night. He can't be moved. For eight days, Tone Struggles to live and dies eight days later. no one's allowed to visit him. It's all very shady. I go into this in the murder of tone and I prove actually that he was murdered. I go right back to original sources letters. Every letter tone wrote after he tried to commit suicide is a fake. In fact, the handwriting is completely different. His handwriting improves after he tries to slit his throat <laughs> supposedly uh, and there's many other shady aspects of this. It's a wonderful story. It's very different to the Collins story, which is. A bigger public thing. This would be more like the Jeffrey Epstein case in that he dies in prison. It's all very yeah, yeah, yeah. But now, no comparison between Tony and Epstein as people, but the circumstances. But the circumstances yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, the jailers, and, and, the vested and,
0: interests, who who wanted him dead, who didn't want him dead, yeah, yeah. all that sort of stuff. And again,
3: it's collusion between Dublin law enforcement, the government of the day. There's actually a split in the government of the day between Cornwallis, who lost the American War, who wants to show a bit of mercy to people, and this kind of dark cabal of the Dublin Orange Lodge who wanted to take out the leader. And by having Tone commit suicide, they effectively the smirch his reputation for the next 20 Precisely. Yeah, years. precisely. And, and what I do is I show that how even academic historians, I have a song on the show called both sides now about Dublin academic historians who've, you know, they have backed up this thing in order to kind of belittle his achievements Remember, Wolf Tone's papers came out. His wife is an incredible woman. His son, William, became one of the best soldiers in the the Napoleonic army. They called him the Little Wolf. In 1826, in America, they publish his writings and it causes a sensation. His diaries are hilarious. He's a very funny guy. But actually, the Duke of Wellington reviews the thing. And he says... No way. The Duke of of Wellington reviewed it? The Duke of Wellington, Arthur Wellesley, reviewed it. The man who won uh, Waterloo. And he says, what Tone achieved was an achievement of genius. And you know, it just shows how well revered he was by his enemies. And that's why. Which is always the, the mark. It's always the mark of a man. Always the mark. Yeah. And, and you know, of course, Wellington, of course, is a guy who gave emancipation to the Catholics two years later as prime minister of, of Britain. I have a lot of time for him. I, I can't bear people who want to give the Wellington monument that, you know, even though he was an enemy of the Republicans, he respected them. And that's something I really appreciate about him. But Tone... They've tried to besmirch his reputation ever since, but he's an amazing guy. He's even, he's like, there was a lot of drinking. There was a lot of fun. There was a lot of carousing and womanizing. He even tells us how to deal with each other on social media. He's arguing with a bunch of fellas up in Belfast during the festival. He says, more and more, I'm seeing the futility of arguing over wine. And it's, (laughs) you know, the way he writes as well, he's like somebody from today. You know, his, his syntax is very modern. It's very cool. And it's funny then, his last statements in prison that they give us are all these kind of Shakespearean, alas, Yorick, I knew him well. I am but a bad anatomist and all this kind of stuff. It's all rubbish. Of course it's rubbish. It's different to the Collins story. You've seen the Collins Collins story. Yeah, yeah, you know, I even go to the newspapers, which as I always say with the newspapers, they're so fake. The rubbish they come out with is so bad, they could be a newspaper from today. (laughs) <laughs> no, no. No, no. No names. As a man who writes from one of them. Well, here's one last thing. One of the newspapers says that the razor that Tone used to attempt suicide on his throat, which is a counterintuitive thing for somebody to do anyway, was left there by his brother six weeks before, who'd been executed after he was captured with Humbert. So somehow, Matthew Tone was like the Fergus Gibson red-top psychic of his day and knew his brother would be in the cell six weeks. (laughs) In
0: that very place, at that very time.
3: And and funny enough, all these guys who jailed him were mad collectors. The jailers of Dublin and the, the chief of police, they were all collectors of memorabilia. They all kept everything. So where's the razor? It's like Michael Collins' rifle. Can't be found anywhere. It'd be worth millions today. And yet the razor has never turned up. And this, to me, makes it ultimately suspect. Mm. That, that, that the show is on Sunday at Docky.
0: Obviously, we'll give the, the website. I, I can't wait for it. I can't wait for it. Before you go, I just want to come back briefly to this idea of the difficulty of the artist, the musician, making a crust here. I don't think, again, people understand just how almost impossible that choice, that life choice is for people. I mean, you it's, you can play, you can sing, you can write music, and do all this stuff.
3: Well, I've been doing it for for twenty five years now, David, and somehow survived, But it's it's interesting. You have to do ten different things, as you know. If you're self employed, you have to do ten different things. So I I do voiceovers. I have the band. I have these shows. The funny thing is when I when I kind of stopped doing the, the national broadcaster and things like that and went into these shows, it, there was almost a reaction in Ireland, and that's some, that's an issue in this country as well. In America generally you can, you can do a lot of different things. You can be a, a jack of all trades. Yeah. In Ireland, somebody decided, Paddy Cullivan, you're the music guy in the late, late, and that's it. Why are you doing these old history shows? What's wrong with you? Can't you just be happy with your loss? <laughs> and this is the problem. You're, you're not allowed to deviate from anything or especially start questioning someone, you know, stay in your own lane. I'm questioning a lot of academic history and they're not happy about it. But unfortunately, you know, I had an academic historian email me and say, Paddy, you know, since I saw one of your shows, I'm rethinking how I research history because what we've done for years is actually just read two books by fellows we respect cross notes and go that's the history unfortunately they didn't go back to source material which I did and of course once you do you find out all sorts of new things and revelatory things but, but this is the problem in ireland it, it's like you've got to stay in your own lane and then it's exposure it's you know who decides what the great art is how is it shown and all of that who's that's the gatekeeper it, when, yeah yeah that, but that's what's brilliant about your podcast and things like that i'm sure you've noticed since you started doing it that It's far easier to connect with audiences. It's far easier, I have found, to build an audience now that we have this alternative route of doing so. And, you know, that that's at least 50% of the work, I have to say. But it is very tough to do, especially since COVID. I think there was a bit more of an understanding since COVID, by the way, by the government about what really goes into it. I don't think they knew at all what was happening beforehand. So I think there was a little bit of a learning curve. But, you know, whether this universal basic income thing or any of these type of things are going to help, I certainly think it helps people produce more now they know they have a roof over their head. That's, and That stands to reason, pay, doesn't it? They can pay the bills. And again, I, I suppose it's a bit like the Wolf Tone, Oliver Bond idea. You know, if we give everybody a little, they're going to spend a bit. They're going to pay a bit of tax. They're going to do this instead of just being serfs and slaves and worrying about where the next, you know, where the next roof of their head is going to be. So, you know, all of these things play into, art is a business like any other. And I think that, you know, it should be respected as a business like any other, because as you've written as well, it makes an incredible amount of money. People don't come to Ireland for the banking. Well, some people, do. we don't know who they are. But they come here for the culture. They come here for the music. They come here for the art. They come here for the chat and the discussions. They do not come here for something they can get everywhere else. Ireland's unique in being that cultural powerhouse. You know, I will never say the word punching above our weight. I can't bear that phrase, you know, as if we're some kind of, as if we're rot the size of rock and not mainland England. But, you know, at the same time, we do have this incredible culture. We have to take care of it.
0: Paddy, we'll leave it there and I'll talk to you in Dalky. And listen,
3: the show is on where and when? The show is everywhere. I'm going to be doing the Wolf Tone Show all throughout the year. So go to paddycullivan.com to links for all tickets, Dalky Book Festival, the Taylor's Hall. Around that weekend is going to be amazing because... Bloomsday is also Wolf Tone Weekend. That's when everybody goes to Bowdenstown. He, he was born on the 20th of June. But I'm also bringing the Michael Collins show to the Liberty Hall Theatre on August 19th, around the anniversary. And anybody who hasn't seen that, come and see that show. As, as, you've seen the show, yeah, David. It's great. You know your... it's great. It's brilliant. I think the one, the one thing you said to me is, this isn't about Michael Collins at all, is it? You said it's about how the Irish think. Exactly. It's about the Irish psyche and dealing with trauma and how we have to make up stuff and tell fibs to ourselves rather than deal with the reality of things.
0: That's very true. Listen, Paddy, we let it go? I will talk to you soon. Great to talk to you.
3: Thanks, David. Cheers, 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 Paddy.
2: How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. In a given
3: month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
1: Heidi, is just great mileage, isn't he? It's great fun. That show he's sounds great. a great company as it? Well. I, I saw the... Yes, he is, yeah. I saw the the Michael Collins one, which is brilliant. I haven't seen the Wolf Tone one, but he's performing that in Dorky. Yes. Which is brilliant. Because actually, what I love about the Dorky Book Festival, amongst many things, is you do have the high flyers like the Tom Hanks and the, the, the Bonos and, and all these... Brian
0: Coxes of this world, yeah. Know,
1: these fellas coming in, jetting in as they do. But you also have loads of smaller shows, which... Actually, normally they're the real surprise ones.
0: Yeah, well, I suppose that's the whole idea of a festival is is to is to try and give a little bit for everyone. And I mean, we've got, yeah. as you said, the, yeah. kind of the, the slightly smaller shows, which which are the ones that maybe really surprise people. Yeah, go on, tell we've us. We've got us. this an amazing English journalist coming called Helen Lewis. Now, people might know her for the woman who interviewed Jordan Peterson got about 60... Oh, man,
1: that guy. Yeah, but yeah. I
0: mean, she's it got about 60 million views on wow. YouTube, her yeah. interview with him. Yeah. But she's got an amazing book, two amazing books. One is The Internet's Gift to Humanity, which she says is, never have so many been bullshitted by so few, <laughs> right? So it's about internet bullshitters <laughs> nice. and gurus nice. and where they come from and how that... It's an yeah. amazing show. And again, it's really germane to what we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. You know, to what we're talking about in terms of generational divides. She's also got a... Beautiful book, right? A bestseller in the UK called Difficult Women, A History of Feminism in Eleven Fights. So it's about the women who created feminism, who created the suffrage F movements. Yeah. They weren't these pliant, lovely, oh, you know, the fragrant business. They were actually scrappers. Yeah, they were they having wrote, fights. They yeah, were up for, for scrap, So yes. this is going to be a fascinating, fascinating one. That's Helen Lewis, and she's on all weekend. There's also a fantastic new historian and who's written a brilliant book called The West, A New History of an Old Idea. Her name is Nisha McSweeney. She's mm-hmm. half Chinese, half Irish, right. based in Austria. Okay. And what she's talking about, to a takedown of the notion of the West. You know, we talk about Western civilization and Western yeah, values yeah, yeah. and Western democracy, primarily because I presume that, you know, she's half Asian, half half European. She's saying, hold it's on a, a second, hold on this. a second. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. No. she's going to explode the myths that underpin the history that we thought we knew from the ancient world to the Crusades to democracy. Uh, her name is Nisha McSweeney. And like, that's what I love. You'd like to bring new faces. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, and then we have, what I also like is having one-on-one discussions with women. Leah Epi, who's from Albania, an amazing book called Freedom. She was there last year. I was going to say, yeah, she was she, brilliant. He and Razan Ibrahim, another woman. This is all these amazing women we have coming to Turkey. Yeah. They're both writing and talking about growing up under dictatorship. So she grew up under Hoxha in Albania, and Razan grew up in Syria under Assad. Right. And she's a refugee in Ireland. She's been here for a couple of years since the Syrian war. And again, it's like, what was it like to be brought up? In a dictatorship, these are,
1: but they, they, not only are these going to be really interesting, but they're really important stories.
0: Actually, they are important stories. They are very important stories. And, and likewise, you know, Masha Gessen, mm. who Masha was brought up in Russia and is an exile from Russia, knows everything about Ukraine. Has written a book on Putin. You know, and that will be a fascinating discussion yeah, yeah. that Saturday afternoon. And then finally, somebody who's been on the show, Lindy Yo, born in Taiwan. Brilliant economist. She's got a new book out on which I think will be very germane for us because yeah. financial markets right now, there's lots of people worrying about what they're going to do. There's lots of people worrying, are they overvalued? There's lots of people worrying about what's going to happen to interest rates. She has a new book on great crashes, lessons from global meltdowns and how to prevent them. And I think that's. Absolutely That's on the really most. good.
1: Because her last book was on the key economic figures, wasn't it? The Great Economists. The Great Economists. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So
0: so we've got, the, the, this is like, uh, this is the off-Broadways. This is the off-Broadway <laughs> shows at Doki. <Ducky. laughs>
1: I love it. I but love again, it.
0: go to the website, dokeybookfestival.org. These are fascinating people, fascinating women, fascinating thinkers. And again, as you said, sometimes it's the little diamond that you just... It's just there shining. It's not the big glossy massive Broadway gig. It's the Oh, I was at that and yeah, that was yeah, fascinating.
1: Yeah. Mark, give us the give us the sales pitch there. Where do we get the tickets? Oh, the
0: sales pitch yeah. is doggybookfestival.org, and we will talk to you next week.